This is KZS, your Stanford 90.1 FM, and welcome to the Arabology Show. This is yours truly, Ramzi Salty, and I am sitting here with one of the most dynamic people that I have known for quite a few years. His name is Ibrahim Name. He is here visiting at Stanford, and has kindly agreed to this interview. Ibrahim, ahla wa sahla fiik bijamatna. Ahla fiik, Ramzi. Kifak, habibi. Kifak, habibi. So today, Ibrahim, was your first time at Stanford? Yeah. Yep. How do you think so far? It's amazing. Hey. The weather was so nice. The campus is gorgeous. And attending your class was amazing. Yeah, I have to tell you, he uh, he came to give a little talk at the second year Arabic uh, course. And mashallah, you took us away <laughs> with your journey, especially in terms of the outpost. Uh, I'm holding uh, in front of me a copy of the outpost, the latest copy, which is uh, Brahim Nam's baby. He's the founder of this amazing journal magazine. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to him to tell me about the idea of the outpost where began maybe take us through the highlights for the magazine uh, whose latest issue is uh, is available so um, the seed of the magazine was planted in 2011 the year we actually met when you were in Beirut all right <laughs> um, and at the time uh, you know the Arab Spring was going on and I felt that there was a lack in media platforms that are telling the story of the youth. Like there wasn't any platform that was telling our story. Um, the story of young people who are living and uh, making things in the Arab region. Most of, the, uh, most of our narrative was being hijacked by mainstream media institutions who took it upon themselves to tell us our own story. And I felt there was a need for a media platform that can help in creating a new narrative um, about who we are, uh, the place we come from. Yeah, so that was the, the, the idea. I started the magazine uh, a year later. I launched the first issue in 2012, and it was launched as a magazine of possibilities. In fact, the first issue, I think, was called The, the Possibility yeah, of, of Possibility. possibility. Yeah. This amazing journal. And uh, I, I mean, like Ibrahim said, I met him in 2011 in Beirut. And uh, the idea was still, was the first issue out then? No, the no. first issue was launched in, in September 2012. The next year. When we met, like really, the was a seed of an idea mm -hmm. and started working on it maybe soon after you left Beirut and then it came into fruition in 2012 and by the oh, by mid-year we had the first issue ready wow yeah. wow and how many issues of the magazine have appeared eight. in, uh, in the past five years we published eight issues the latest issue is this one here what is the date of this issue this, this was published uh, in September 2016 Almost well, a year ago. And it is the last issue for now? Yeah. yeah. No. Well, why did you decide to stop? Um, because after five years of publishing the magazine, I realized that I needed space away from the magazine to reflect on all that we'd done and also to think about how we can capitalize on the work we've done in order to amplify or magnify the impact that we were witnessing. As I mentioned to you before, I was really inspired by how the magazine was inspiring different people to take different forms of effective action. And that was really inspiring to me. And I thought if one magazine alone was capable of creating such an, such an impact, what could be the impact if we actually tell our story online and on air and like on the ground with events and all sorts of 
uh, like multimedia uh, storytelling. Mm. So that was the idea, and I spent the past year uh, kind of building the case. Like I wanted to show our donors why should they invest in a platform of imagination. Like what's the role? Like how can imagination eventually shift our cultural landscape and create change. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've been doing in the past year. And now after a year of research and thinking, and uh, uh, I, I have a couple of projects which, are gonna, which I'm going to launch uh, early next year. Yeah, where you keep us updated uh, about of, those. Of course. Are, are so the other thing I wanted to say that was really impressive about the latest issues is you actually uh, uh, printed for the first time an Arabic supplement yeah, yeah. to the uh, magazine, um, uh, which is a full supplement Do you ever get uh, criticized for having uh, the magazine be in English? And if so, how do you respond to people saying, well, you're writing about the Arab world and the region and you're trying to target the youth and involve them, but then you're writing with what some may see as the colonizer's language? Oh, like I that. get a lot of criticism and also when I go and talk about the magazine it's usually one of the first questions I get asked like if you are an Arabic publication if you are like a publication about the Arab world and trying to promote an Arab narrative why are you not published or why are you not writing in Arabic and usually my response is that I wanted to create a magazine that I could personally read which wasn't existent in the market at the time and I because of perhaps the our colonial uh, colonialist history i happened to go to an american school and i studied english in beirut in beirut and so many of my other friends went to french schools and they were taught even the sciences in foreign language so you ended up with this group of young adults now who consume their media primarily in english and french and not in arabic which i know is a problem but it's part of the current reality we inhabit so i wanted to create a publication that speaks our language that we can actually read. And that was the primary reason why we opted for English. But also, I wanted to create a publication that can reach out to Europe and the wider region, like the wider world, right. and uh, somehow challenge and help break the stereotypes uh, about the, the, the Arab region. Because right. you're contributing, I think, towards that discourse, but you're coming from uh, an Arab point of view, and you're filling that gap, Ibrahim Naamein. Oh, thank you. Thank you. thank you. So can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about your own background, uh, where you were born, raised, and how you became interested in journalism? So I was born and raised in Lebanon, and north of Lebanon, uh, in a region called Kura, which is by the coast next to Tripoli. Oof. And then I moved uh, to Beirut when I was uh, 18 and I went to the American University of Beirut and I uh, initially wanted to do filmmaking, but I couldn't go into film school. So I ended up in business school mm. uh, just, you know, to get a degree and like um, have something. Um, and then while I was studying, I took a marketing course, which was the only inspiring course, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, at the time. And while I was doing the course, the teacher told me that I, I, I write very well. And mm -hmm. in, in the beginning, I didn't take her seriously because it, it had never occurred to me before that time that I could write. 
Uh, and somehow this was a turning point in my life because after that I started writing for a couple of local publications and that's how I got into journalism. Mm. And somehow that experience in journalism kind of molded my experience in such a way that when the time came, I was actually ready to launch my own publication. And and so did you expect the outpost to receive the kind of critical acclaim it no, received? No. Well, well, you, there was a quote, and I know you must be, uh, you might be humble, but there was a quote about you and the Economist. Um, yeah, it was the you know. We, so basically, at the time, I was 24 when I was when I started working on this, and I uh, after the idea came like after it started becoming real I gathered all what I could gather from resources and friends and all help I could get and I put out the first issue and like in my mind I'm like what are we doing like we're a bunch of kids mm. playing and like trying things out and we had this issue out but then suddenly it got picked up by all this different international media and the Guardian had this quote saying uh, the outpost looks like a successor to the economist and successor we were like, to the economist <laughs> and we were like oh my god what the hell is going on yeah yeah and you didn't expect uh, at all like so, uh, soon after we launched it kind of took a life of its own we started getting nominated for awards and stuff and the media were talking about us and like people were writing emails to the extent that actually inspired one of our issues like we wanted to study look or, or explore how far can stories actually go in affecting our lives and the, our perspectives and the universes we build for ourselves right uh, the, are the issues available for people um, um, right now unfortunately most of the previous issues are sold out so um, not really but the last two issues which is this one the home issue and the one before the body issues are still available for purchase online where would people go Ibrahim? at the moment the <laughs> online store is down because we have you know uh, paypal doesn't work in lebanon oh, right. so we had a so, whole issue with like uh, online yeah. payment uh, but hopefully this will be fixed soon okay so it's the outpost we'd be looking for the outpost hopefully and perhaps just to plant an idea here is to make some of the previous issues available online at some point yeah. because they really are part of this much needed archive that is not existent on the net thank you and I, th I think just from the reaction you got today from students at Stanford everybody wanted to buy the previous issues wanted to read the previous issues so uh, certainly keep us uh, up to date about that for sure uh, i wanted to talk to you about one more thing uh brahim although i could speak to you for hours i know you have to go soon but um you know you were one of the f uh, first publications to actually feature a full uh, article or feature on uh, hamid sinno the lead uh, singer from mashroa daida the lebanese group and i know that right now he's uh, going to be in berkeley for example in a, in a week to speak about some of what's going on in terms of their concert in egypt where the gay flag was raised. I'm going to leave it to you to perhaps contextualize that a little bit, to also say, um, just for full disclosure, that you're also friends with Hamid Sinnoh. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could start there and take us through um, Masroor Leila's journey via the outpost and beyond. We actually went to, uh, like university, we all went to American University together. At the time when we were studying, they had just formed the band and they were playing like on campus and then slowly they started playing around Hamra, which is the area in West, West Beirut where uh, the university is situated and was very much a local uh, affair at the time. But because I think of their genuine attempt to 
create and uh, publish a new narrative, they got picked up really quickly. Uh, to the extent that a few years after that, they were asked by the Baalbek Festival, which is one of the most prominent in the Middle East, to go and perform there. And here was a band which was barely four years old with the gay frontman, lead singer, being asked by one of the most important festivals in the region to go and play there. And this was clearly something that was going to be attacked by the media. Mm. Uh, and we knew about this story. We knew about this because they were f- our friends before the story broke in the news. So what we did is that we sent a writer, Yava, uh, to actually shadow the band for the whole period before they actually took onto the stage in Malbec. So she basically went to their preparations and rehearsals and almost lived with them. And what came of, out of that experience was a brilliant account of that time period of the band's preparations, but also of how the social and cultural fabric was changing to accommodate this new conversation, mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, looking back, that was in 2012. Uh, looking back and tracing Meshua Leila's story, I can... Yeah, but we, we, we want to say that then, then that led to the publication of the article, uh, yes. the feature. In our first Meshua issue. Leila, in your very first issue in of our the very Outpost. First issue. It was the opening article, actually. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's that would be another reason to want to, like, go back and read about yeah. the, the band at that time through your amazing uh, work and feature. Whoever, Yafa is, what's her name, Yafa? Yeah. Yeffa, we should say a big hello to her. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, then please take us through the journey because you continue to uh, to be in touch with uh, with the band, perhaps with Hamid. Yes, also. and um, like now, like asking me this question now and reflecting back because you just also mentioned that Hamid will be coming here. Uh, to and, Berkeley. To Berkeley, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. And I know that uh, they were in New York having this um, workshop and they've been touring with their latest album. And they also had the uh, concert in Egypt. Egypt uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, which led to this massive crackdown. Right. It, it, I would love it, uh, Ibrahim, if you could just tell us what happened at that concert, because that gained sort of global exposure. Yeah, so basically they had this concert in Egypt, which turned out to be the biggest ever, I think, and with uh, 35,000 people in attendance. And, you know, uh, in many ways across the Arab region, Meshwa Leila's concerts have become safe spaces for the LGBT community because mm-hmm. gay and queer people go... Because, you know, they can express their identity, they can relate to what's like to the music and to Hamid and to the band more generally. So a couple of young kids were raising the rainbow flag and soon after... At at the concert in Cairo, my lord. And uh, soon, <laughs> soon after this happened, uh, there were there were uh, there there was all this talk in like the tabloid and and right. uh, like the media that you know uh, the concert was promoting um, you know LGBT blah blah blah, mm. and uh, then this led to a huge crackdown on uh, they arrested like I don't know the exact details because different accounts kept on like uh, surfacing, but there was a huge crackdown. And uh, on LGBT on L- people, on LGBT people uh, in, in Cairo, in Cairo, LGBTQ people in uh, in Cairo, and that continues to happen. Right continues now, to happen, I, yeah. but also like for me, looking back at where 
Mashua Layla started seven or six years ago and now. And I think their journey is also an account of how society and how our culture change in so in such a in such a little time. And I think we're very much inclined sometimes to talk about the wrong things that are happening or the bad things, which is which like, which is important. But also sometimes this like we forget to talk about how much headways we have made in just so little time. And I yeah. think it's important to remind of ourselves of these small victories because these these are what they will eventually lead us to the yeah. big victories. Yeah. But uh, the, one of the things I found shocking about, sad about the Cairo con- uh, concert for Mashro Leila is that it wasn't even the band that actually flew the rainbow flag in Cairo, but it was people in the audience. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. And uh, <coughs> those very kids in the audience who flew the rainbow flag were the ones that were trying, you know, being uh, investigated and tracked down through video and whatever, and some of them, uh, you know, have been arrested, and that led to sort of this new wave of homophobia and persecution. Yeah. The way I see it is that it's a necessary. That's uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And when I like when I first started by saying that the concerts of Mashallah have become somehow safe havens for the LGBT community, says so much about how far we've come since 2011 since their Balba concert till now. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's a snowball effect, I think. Yeah. It's only yeah. going to go If up. anything, where it started, a much-needed discourse that centers on marginalized sexualities in the Arab world, for one sure. that has been brewing for a while. So let us end, Ibrahim Nami, by asking you about uh, what you're doing now in California and what is next for the amazing Ibrahim. <laughs> so I am here on a five-week uh, writing residency. I'm... Uh, Hold up in a studio in the forest in Saratoga. Saratoga, California. Yeah, no, uh, trying to write my first book. I'm also like um, slowly trying to begin my new project, which is going to be called the Kite Project, which basically picks up from where the outpost left, and uh, in the sense that it attempts to create platforms of imagination. Because I truly believe that freedom begins in the imagination or change begins in the imagination. It's such a pleasure to interview a friend. Thank you so much for having me. Habibi, somebody who uh, actually was such a wonderful, generous host. We also should give a shout out to Rafat. Of course. Rafat, Habibi. uh, Both of you were so hospitable to to me when I was in Lebanon in 2011. And if in some way I'm able to host you here at Stanford and to um, uh, disseminate uh, your work to... uh, our listeners at Stanford and abroad, and I have, uh, I'm honored to do so. Thank you so much. And I love the optimistic note that you try to end on and begin with always, because it does tend to be overwhelmingly depressing to Especially look at the, today. At the news, yeah. the way it's presented, and uh, this glimmer of hope is much needed. You keep the candle burning for us, <laughs> and for that we thank you. Thanks for having me, Ramzi. It's such a pleasure. And we will stay in touch right here on the Arab Algae Show, uh, coming to you from KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Um,